0: Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. I'm very excited about this one. One of my aims of the Times Live podcast is for us to learn to place South Africa in the world and to bring the world to South Africa in terms of our public discourse. If I had to put that a little bit more rudely, I want us as South Africans to be less parochial and to understand geopolitically and in other respects what happens north of Limpopo matters, And it's really important, whether we talk economic diplomacy, whether we talk pure politics, although they're always unmeshed, that it's really important that we understand the details of what happens globally and how South Africa and the region fits when it comes to international relations. Now, one person that is and will be a regular, helping us to expand our positioning of African issues within the globe, is, of course, brilliant analyst with a range of skills, besides being a futurist, also a policy expert, and someone who does great work in the media to explain complexities in a way that's understandable without loss of nuance. And, of course, I'm talking about Kofi Kwakwa, who is an Africa analyst, as well as a senior researcher at the Center for Africa-China Studies, which is located at the University of Johannesburg, which I must say has done a great job to attract thinkers like himself. And the research output and excellence of of UJ has really gone from strength to strength over the last 10, 15 years. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're gonna hear a lot of law, politics, and ethics, how they intersect, and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans.
1: When
0: people saw their children must know this are sellouts, they put
1: saliva on the paper.
0: Mr. Julius Malema. Whispered and said, "Sing it, sing it." And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize.
1: Can I have my iPad, (laughs) please? So they stole it.
0: Coffee, welcome back. It's lovely being in conversation with you as always. Thank you so much, Eusebius, for having me again. And hello to your listeners. Last time we talked about continental Europe and some of the continuations when it comes to Africa being a playground for mighty powers in the global north that have fights with each other. And Africa is often a proxy where some of those fights are playing out. Where they'd be, for example, most of the EU nation states having a fight with Russia and what the implications are for where Africa might fit in as a useful host through which some of those battles can play out. In today's episode, we are going to focus on, I thought about it, on the one hand, a fairly old traditional topic that any undergraduate IR student would have been introduced to very quickly at university. And yet on the other hand, it also struck me that there's very little recent popular discussion about our topic. And that is the USA and its interest on the continent. Where do we begin with this one?
1: Well, one of the things that I look at when I do these analysis to be able to observe properly is there are three elements of time and space. And these sequences sometimes don't mesh very well. So the first one is looking at hindsight or what many of us will call his story (laughs) or her story. Now, history is very important. Then the second one is insights or today, yeah? And then the next one is what we would call tomorrow or foresight, all right? So if we look at, we take this, this sort of spectrum, right? to articulate what, to answer your question, is that I look at history a little bit. In fact, in history, you know, ancient history uh, before the U.S., uh, let's say when the U.S. was created, the U.S. did have some connection with Africa, you know, through businesses and so forth. But let's come closer to recent, what I would call recent history, especially um When Liberia was created, right? (laughs) That's the first connection. And many people have no clue that the US has got a base, military base in Liberia. The US will deny that, right? As well as a US base in uh, Botswana, next door. Of course, this is also being denied. You know how it goes. But it is said that the US has got. 29 military bases across the African continent spread all over the place and growing. The other one is there's a great interest now in West Africa and in the Gulf of Guinea next to it right there in West Africa because of the enormity of the natural resources that are at play there, right? The U.S. wants a piece of the action. So it's a sort of a rescramble of Africa but with a much more very couched in, it's not sort of what we call a hot war type of thing, but they're still present. The building bases, again, they managed to sign a deal for a defense and military base, again, in Ghana, that's next door to Ivory Coast, called Cote d'Ivoire. Now, the U.S. presence has been here for a while. And so that presence, in fact, if you look at what has happened after World War II, the U.S. has been running partly, uh, I mean, you, you now know, uh, this is a, a, an evidence that's known in history that the, the uranium that was used in the atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki came from the, what was used to be called the Congo or Zaire, right? And those links are already there. So Africa has always been to a large degree for the United States, a place for extractions of mineral and natural resources for its energy. Very important. So that presence cannot be denied. And with time, and as I was saying to somebody that in fact, the US business model is both military and business. Or oh, <laughs> military business. They're very smart in, in that. And both of them work together. So when business is in trouble anywhere, they will buy in, they'll push and pressure the government to have their, um, if you want, their interests being taken care of. And using the military was a very powerful instrument. And so the, the United States has been engaged in Africa and that from the assassination of Patrice Lumumba with the declassified CIA documents to uh, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, to the Horn of Africa in Somalia with uh, Bill Clinton and so forth. The US presence has been there, but it's now becoming, becoming a lot more important because the US is now finding that other players are moving into
0: that territory, i.e. Russia and China. Before we talk about that battle with Mm. Russia and China for influence on the continent, what you have just summarized as a fantastic bite-sized but sufficiently large summation of that history of America in and on Africa, I've got to raise this question. You know, it's kind of interesting. We know when you learn certain words and terms in international relations, hegemony and hegemonic powers and empire. But as Africans, like in our first focus in this, what is informally going to be a series between you and me on on international relations and, and, and Africa in relation to the world, we think about Portugal, we think about Germany, we think about the Dutch, we think about the Brits, because they actually came here on ships. But it's weird that we don't think about America in the same terms. But if I listen to you now about America's interest in business and military, it seems to me that we ought to think of America as also part of empire. And just because they didn't come here and colonize Botswana or South Africa or Namibia doesn't mean that they've been any less predatory than Belgium or France or the Dutch or the Brits. But when we talk about American hegemony, we often would think about things like American cultural hegemony, giving us McDonald's, giving us certain forms of music, giving us Hollywood we might bemoan that or we might be indifferent to, to, to those net imports of American cultural tropes and praxis, for example. But we seldom think of America as evil, as a military-industrial complex. And yet, despite your beautiful voice, the content of your messaging to me seems to suggest that we ought to think of America as an extension of, of empire. But when we usually think empire, we might think of the Queen of England. Yes, indeed. And in fact, you just put your finger on it.
1: That term empire in international relations or hegemonical uh, state is very true. But I think what the United States and most of its leaders and its systems have managed to do well is to really portray the empire as a good doing, do gooder empire. So one of the powers of America is that cultural hegemony, where they've managed to really, you know, play out um, that empire or hegemonic, um, you know, a force by letting people buy into so well, so that in fact, culturally, here we are, you know. We, most of us, I mean, I studied in the US, the excitement about going to study there, finding ways to build up and so forth, learning English and so forth. So this is really st- sort of soft power, but very, at a certain degree, becomes almost insidious because you have a framework by which you have to think about the United States. And for the most part, when people try to get away, uh, move away from it, It is seen very badly by the United States itself. So that empire has a footprint that is not even known to everybody. Now, there is the physical empire, you know, and if you look at that physical side of it, there is a cultural. There are multi-dimensions, in fact, right? So if we take it a physical, if somebody were to tell you that the United States is a, you know, uh, three hundred uh, 24, 40 million, 80 million people, roughly. And then the size of it is what we see on that map. You know, that world map. It's very deceiving. The footprint of the empire is not only it goes beyond that physical side. In fact, there's the, the U.S. has got more territories outside what we see than what we see. In addition to pushing the military empire with, uh, The official number is saying 800 bases, but we know it's more than 800 bases to a thousand bases. You know, many people have no clue that Germany today, as well as Japan, is the same as South Korea are occupied territories. It's a hard thing to say.
0: That, that that's an extension of the empire. Yeah. I want to cut to the core of why we chose this topic today. You've written a piece. I don't know what the final title was, but the version that I read at the point at which you had been writing several drafts of it was the U.S. war on Africa. You've just spoken now about how deceptive American use of soft power can be. And it can, if you swallow some of the American narrative – On the continent, you might even see it as one of the greatest charity organizations that help us out in our fight against HIV-AIDS, for example, and that kind of thing. But of course, beneath that, there's not just political, but an explicit economic diplomatic mission. But you go so far as to say that there is a war on Africa and that the U.S. is one of the aggressors in that war on Africa. That is a fascinating claim. Is that a claim you make for clickbait purposes or do you mean it literally? I think I mean it literally.
1: And let me use two windows or what we usually call uh, in international relation, two vistas. These are terms that we use in Spanish to say windows. And these small windows, to open them up, it's the first one is the language that's being used. You know, very recently, about two weeks ago, Secretary Antony Blinken was on a visit to this country. And he had this sort of what I called in my piece, you know, a supply-side speech, right, which means we're telling you this is our strategy for, and the key thing was for sub-Saharan Africa. And I, language to me matters. I mean, you're a, a cunning language, so you know why it's so important. So it's a divided rule, splitting Africa into so many other things, sub-Saharan Africa. And then where's the other part of Africa? (laughs) We're not quite sure. But this vista tells us a bit that we are at war, but it's a soft war that's been couched into a very soft diplomatic language. In one way, it said to us, oh, the U.S. is not back into Africa because of any other country. But we know that's what I call strategic lie. The US is back and the US has always been here, in fact, working through proxies and so forth through private companies. But the US is back because Russia is pushing hard. They're having a hard time with the Ukraine situation. Russia is completely disrupted. What was old power, of course, the US is still very powerful, but it means that the US now is transferring. It's aggression towards Russia onto Africa. The first vista is a soft language. Okay, we know we're very equal. Uh, we now have to come in and do business with you. Uh, focuses again is on terrorism and in agriculture, food security and so forth. But on another hand, this is the language officially when it's sweet talking. But on the other hand, it said, wait a minute, don't do business with Russia. Because if you did business with Russia, this is a second B-step. There's a U.S., what's called a, a, a maligned, uh, some kind of bill that's now going in Parliament. Again, line Russian activities in, in in Africa. And the context is clear. And I always say this, context governs meaning. The context is in Africa. The U.S. hasn't passed a specific law against Europeans doing business with Russians. Right, and it's now passed to Congress. it's going to go to Senate, and then it's going to move to the president's table, and there's a strong sense that this bill this this bill's going to become a law. now, coming back to that point that you make, and those two elements, those two vistas, tell me exactly that we are at war because the language itself sanctions Africa. You do business with them. you are in big trouble with us. We're going to deal with you. That's one. And they haven't even waited for the ink of this bill to become law. They are already at war with Africans, and any African's going to do that business with Russian. Any Russian, especially with Putin and anybody else,
0: will be in trouble and That is the worst. If someone can listen to this coffee, I can imagine some of my my some of our listeners, especially the ones who are trade specialists or just ordinary captains of industry used to doing business who will say, "You know what? I don't give a damn." about uh, ideological battles between East and West, between the USA and Russia, who cares? I'm not a victim. I'm an actor homo economicus, either as an individual or at the nation state level. And I, in fact, far from being a playground for these big guys to be fighting a battle in which there's a war and I am being held captive as South Africa or as Senegal, in fact, I'm in the lucky position that because they are so egotistical, both Russia and the USA, and we can chuck in China as well, that if they think it's really cool to crowd each other out on African soil, then we actually have incredible negotiating power because we can negotiate on our own terms. You can reject American conditional aid that doesn't want you to do business with Russia. Or you can say, sorry, Russia, any mid 20th century affinities we had are far less important than our short to medium term economic interests. And America is offering me $5 more than you are. Are you going to make a counter offer? So, isn't that an alternative reading? That this is an opportunity for Africa precisely to demonstrate that it is not just a passive region on which Proxy battles can be played out, but it can actually capitalize on these ideological wars.
1: Ideally, it's a great position and ideology to adopt that talks about agency, your ability to decide your own fate and your sovereignty, economic sovereignty, and so forth. That's the ideal. But in truth, in what I call neorealism, is that people who adopt this position tend to forget that there's another missing element. And that missing element is that agency of power. Africans don't have the power to deal with these powerful global nations. And so you must find a way to negotiate that neorealism realism balance to be with others by association. So when Africans associate with, for example, Russia, it's really not because they love russia to bed is how do we find a much more realistic approach to deal with these powers especially the united states and europe who've been choking us to death for centuries and for centuries africans haven't been able the africans are giving a good talk but they don't have the power to exercise that ideal element that you just mentioned to say look i have agency I'm going to tell you what to do, <laughs> right? And
0: and with out of interest, as a sidebar, coffee. Yes. Explain to us why that is the case. Uh, you know, sometimes we're scared to ask very basic questions, but <laughs> every time, yes. I think you and I have spoken about it, maybe, but but because I'm having deja vu. But but let me ask it again, even if I have before. Every time I see that CNN feel good clip about pushing back against modern forms of slavery where that American academic that goes to the DRC and sees these children that are busy helping to make sure that cobalt is, you know, sort of taken from the DRC and goes to the rest of the world and then kind of says to the viewers of CNN, wherever you are in the universe, if you have a device where cobalt is an important input product, please make sure that you are now conscientized about child slavery, exploitation of adults even, that go into the making of something that you take for granted when you go to the supermarket and buy it and you use it. And then I think to myself, but why the hell... If you are one of these African governments, you've got another piece that we'll talk about on a different occasion. If you are rich in oil, for example, in minerals, in things that are scarce elsewhere, how can it be the case that that does not give you real, real power in negotiations?
1: I mean, that's the point. Real power is not just what you have or what you own or what you supposedly perceive to own. It's the ability to exercise it that makes the difference. And this is why the United States is powerful. The United States doesn't go around talking only. It exercises that brute force. So that's the first one: brute force. You may have all those resources, you may have the energies, but if somebody next to you has got the power of the military or anything else to force you, they will own that wealth. And this is what's been happening to Africa. If we took the Simple example of South Africa, you know, gold, one of the most extraordinary minerals that we have, yes? And not only gold, but you also have platinum. You have rare earth minerals in South Africa. And this is just South Africa. The rest of the continent is just full of these things. And these are very powerful assets to own. But owning them is not just enough. But protecting them, being able to set the price is something Africans do not have. So we don't have that power. We need to start to understand what power really means and how to exercise it. And until we get to that point, it doesn't matter what the Southern African development community leaders did last week to say to the U.S. against that malign Russian activity in Africa bill. The the U.S. doesn't even hear that. But wait a minute. When Russia is in Mali, guess what? The U.S. is just all frazzled up trying to figure out, my goodness, what do we do? So exercising it is important. And Russians are not exercised. It's brute force. It's terrible. But they are showing up. It's a sad thing in neorealism. The idea that if you don't understand power and use it well for your advantage, somebody else will use it against you.
0: Okay. Third last question. If these are the intentions of the US in terms of what it wants here, and the Secretary of State is very lucky to have, at least in your interpretation of the media's re- reporting, to have a fairly generous and client media that just reports quotes such as, we're not interested in another country, we here on our own terms, we're not interested in Trump, we're interested in the future as if there's no continuities between governments and states. Are other superpowers better? Is the fact that the research institute you're working at, with the name China in it, mean that you are more amenable to less bad adjectives attached to Chinese and Russian interests in the region? Not at all. This is exactly the point, because. We have to
1: be critical, and then I use the term neorealist. We have to be neorealists. You know, the word neorealist is really question most of the things we hold for truth, right? And one of them is that if we are saying that the U.S. is not at war with us, it doesn't mean China is not at war with us. We need to interrogate that. The Russians, you know, they're probably nice now, but... There's always evolution, and we know what it means to have power. And those who understand the nature of power, power evolves. You know, at first you say, no, Eusebius, you're going to be the director general of this. No, I understand. I'm going to be kind. And then guess what? Over time, as it evolves, the abuse becomes the model for governing, for doing anything you want to do. So the Chinese and the Russians at this stage, Africans got to use them strategically enough to get out of the yoke, the economic and political and cultural yoke of what we're getting from Europe and the United States. So strategically, neo-realists should be starting to think about this. It doesn't mean China is doing great and we're going to be with them for all these times. They might turn around. We need to be aware and anticipate that. But at this stage, China and Russia are attempting to find solutions that are now appealing to Africans. We need to look at that. You know, what is good for us, what is not good? Can we, by agency, by ability to say yes or no, be able to speak and not having the same thing that the Europeans do to us or the Americans do to us? No, you can't speak, you know. Uh, You can't do this because we own you largely. They don't come out in public and say, that, right, but I'm sure you've seen a video that's gone viral um, from a professor, an American professor, I think it, it was in Europe or so, saying that Africa is a value interest for us. We want to maintain them where they are. We don't want them to develop. So there's not, they're not emerging, not just emerging, another model that's challenging the sort of unilateral ideal of what's quote unquote democracies, right? The United States, the Europeans with human rights stuff. And the other one that's saying sort of emerging with the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa saying we need a polypolarity, a polycentric world where at least, you know, we don't have to buy into everything, but can we buy into many other things that are useful to us? And we don't want to be at war every time with something or bullying people. You know, it it just doesn't. In fact, it goes against the democratic principles that most of these nations, the West, has been saying to people. And so, can we open up that room to have agency to choose when we want to choose, even when we are wrong? Right? Uh, The Ukraine issue has been one at the United Nations. South Africa, Africans must take a side. But when there are trouble at home, The Europeans hardly take sides seriously to build Africa where it's supposed to be built, to help Africa. We've seen this in the COVID-19 crisis, pandemic crisis. Europeans were hogging the vaccines, talking about intellectual property rights. We can't do this and that. Now, they have a point, (laughs) because if Africans got their act together, they should be making vaccine. They should use traditional medicine and so forth. That's where the agency comes into So there you could use that agency, but you also understand the power to use it. If your power is weaker than that of the United States, I don't care how fast, how big your agency is. If they're coming and they want to, if the United States today wants to take over South Africa, what are you going to do, you see this? Mm.
0: Okay. I'm going to combine my last two questions into one because I think they're interrelated. You've presented a very clear case and it's a clear case of being cautious in how we read American diplomacy and america's interest geopolitically in the region, and even though that many even though many of us are aware of illegal forays military wise of America in latin america central america in asia the far east. We have a very quaint view of America in Africa. At most, we might get annoyed and say there's too much American money when it comes to supporting, for example, evangelical churches that are conservative and doesn't help with spreading important messaging in public health, for instance, or for queer rights and that kind of thing. But we we don't really do massive state-centric analysis of American hegemonic military and economic interests writ large on the continent, and I think you've made a good case for that. But I guess my my final twin questions are, is it a zero-sum game, or are there also, even if it's from a selfish premise, an interest that America has to not be a total arsehole in how it operates on the continent, even if there's an instrumental reason behind some of the things that it might be willing to do. I'm thinking, for example, coffee of the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. And related to that then, what is the appropriate strategic posture for the African Union to have, and for us as South Africa to have towards the USA, viewing it with suspicion might be on your analysis, founded in truth, but it may still be tactically not the right posture to adopt when you are sitting across a long table in Pretoria. Powerful questions. And
1: the first answer to you, Eusebius, is it's always been a zero sum game with America. I mean, the evidence is all over it to be seen. With Americans' engagement in all these places in Africa, which country, even in addition to this uh, Agora thing, you know, growth and opportunity, is for an elite, for a small group, it doesn't get you anywhere. I mean, you can anybody can even ask you, where do you start with this Agora thing? You have no clue <laughs> whatsoever, right? So the system, the capitalist system. Has something inherently flawed in it. it serves only a very small group of people the elite i 'm no I'm, i mean i'm I, I love the sense of capitalism I mean, as you know, I work for one of those big banks i can 't say the name here in washington, but i'm also imbued with that the sense of entrepreneur being making things happen, you know making profit and so forth but you know, when it's abused, it doesn't help everybody else as a, in, in large part. And we're seeing this across the continent. How in the world would the United States and Europeans sit down and look at what they call equal partnership and so forth with African countries and accept the fact that unemployment across the continent is at least at 50 to 60 percent? Incredible. Even in their own, even in their own countries, as unemployment moves to 9%, there's riots almost everywhere. Food problem, prices, this and that. But they accept that kind of thing in partnership. And they have people who are running these countries, who are helping them make those countries as poor as they are. So there is literally a health and and healthy problem here. That's, that's an issue to to confront. Right. And so that's one model. The other model is saying, can we spread it around for a lot of people to be at least? I mean, we don't want to have extreme poverty running around because we know what it does to the growth of humanity. And as you said again, I mean, this continent is sitting on so much wealth, at least on the ground. And on top of it, all kinds of people. We have a youth bulge now. This is going to be probably the biggest one in the next coming 20, 25 to 30 years in the world. The continent, the African continent yeah. is probably going to be, uh, I mean, the population will be three or four times by the you know 250 oh. or 260. What do you do with that? Mm-hmm. So what is the role of the mm-hmm. United States in that? Rather than just telling people or at least being having some kind of aggressive nature against Africa, don't do business, don't do this. What we also want to hear is do business with us. In this way, we're going to help you build bridges, roads, fix this and that. We're going to help you, I'm saying, not do it for you. Now, if their offerings is not matching what the Chinese or the Russians or the Turks or anybody else is bringing, Africans are saying, hey, we want to have the right of choice. We like you. Doesn't mean we don't want you here. We want you here. But can we explore other business models? or development model. Can you
0: just and that is the Yeah, can you just mm-hmm. in that package a response to the the second part of my question? What does that mean for the low ranking diplomat or the ambassador at the UN in the USA? What does it mean the next time Minister Pando speaks to the Secretary of State, strategically or tactically, what posture does she adopt while secretly agreeing with you? So this has been a challenge
1: to most of our diplomats. In fact, the past two weeks I've been doing a very interesting interview with the former Dean of Diplomats in Africa, and he's just hitting with enormous, so we're hoping to write a book about it. And there's a lot of challenges in what's called public diplomacy and then private diplomacy. And the truth, you know, straddle a little bit along both lines. You know, one of the things that for the first time many people have been talking about that we've seen that, you know, we may not like the NC government or whatever it is, but Pendle hit it right on the money when Secretary of State Blinken was here to just start to speak. To express something many people are thinking you know what you're saying in private she brought it softly in public right one of the things that are missing to answer your question directly to find stuff is that we need more communication and most african diplomats and head of states don't have the lines to the powers that be in the world being in washington or being russia in moscow or in Beijing, most of them don't have those direct lines to these powers. So if those lines are open more and more, and they should make a case for that, very soon that conversation will change. So we need a different conversation about Africa into that global sphere of power. But Africans also need to build their own powers. And, I mean, two weeks ago, guess who was having that straight line with uh, President Putin? Straight on the top. The, pres- the the head of the transitional government in mali you know Goita, is asked because he's now worried that the french are gonna topple him so he called the organizing to have a link with russia and say please help me they're in trouble first they try to kill me last month and i need your help and help is coming
0: to him as always absolutely fascinating i've really enjoyed that um, coffee and i look forward to further discussions like this between you and me so that we can expand the interest of African citizens and not end up being anthropological subject of the global north, but actively asserting ourselves as citizens within the international arenas. Thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome, Eusebius. Question.